Let us begin by praying. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. First, let me start by offering some background to both our readings, and then we will ponder upon what we can take from them today. Job is not an easy book to read. It is full of despair and turmoil, of trial and tribulation. And yet what comes here is a significant declaration of Job's faith, a faith in the living God. I love the way that the theologian John MacArthur surmised this passage. He said, at the point of Job's greatest despair, his faith appeared at its highest as he confidently affirmed that God was his redeemer. On a human level, this might appear strange. Job has been through so much. So much hardship has come upon him. And yet it's not prior to this that Job makes this great declaration, but after. Job is keen to ensure that others know that it is not his sin that has led him to the life he has been required to navigate, but that in the midst of all the hardship he has known and continues to know, the one whom forgives all sins and will atone for him on the last day. In this declaration of Job's, we see a glimpse of an understanding of the now and not yet of the kingdom of God. An understanding of a God who is alive today and a God who one day we will see face to face. Theologian Matthew Henry aligns Job's declaration here with some of the words of the Nicene Creed, that Job declares a belief in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and his understanding of the need to look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Let us go, go back, however, to the start of this passage, before this great declaration of faith is made. Job's plea. His heart cry is that his words might be written, that there might be a record. Well, what greater record could one ask for than to be recorded in the Holy Scriptures? The inspired word of God that will be passed from generation to generation, that we all might know the greatest story ever told, that of our Redeemer. That is the record in which Job's great declaration sits. And so let's turn to our passage from Paul's second letter to the church in Thessalonica. Our passage starts with an understanding that we will, as believers, one day stand face to face with our Lord, just as Job had implied. However, in this letter, Paul acknowledges some of the events that will happen prior to this. A brief explanation of something of the chaos and confusion that will come. That believers will be deceived and destruction will come upon the earth. Matthew Henry shares that errors in the mind tend greatly to weaken our faith. And such as are weak in faith of troubled minds are oftentimes apt to be deceived. Paul has highlighted to the church in Thessalonica previously of the happenings before Christ's return. But what I believe we are seeing here 
is an apostle who is eager to ensure that believers are constantly alert to the schemes of the evil one. Not to invoke fear, but to remain vigilant in watching and praying for the return of Christ. Paul then goes on to explain that the people of God were chosen, set apart, made holy by God from the beginning of time. He explains that the justification and sanctification of God's chosen people is made so through Christ. That because of Christ, those who know him are saved by faith in the truth of the gospel. John MacArthur writes, We are not elected of God because we were holy, but that we might be holy. Paul follows this with a command, an appropriate response to salvation and an undeserved salvation at that. In explanation of Paul's command, MacArthur writes, in place of agitation should come strength and a firm stand. In place of false teaching should come faithful adherence to the truth. And we'll look a little bit later at what standing firm might look like for us. And finally, in this passage, Paul, as he often does, ends with a benediction, a blessing and encouragement to the church in Thessalonica of the love and grace of God, the source of encouragement and strength. So what then can we take from these two readings? Well, I think there is the sense of a journey, that faith is not simply something that happens overnight, but something that needs to be worked at, a destination that is never fully reached until we enter into eternal glory with Jesus. Yet there are things that we can each do to see it more daily. There are three significant aspects of this journey that I would like to touch on this morning. And they are to know the truth, to live in the truth, and to experience the truth. I believe each one of these is key, but they are not necessarily linear. We don't have to have fully grasped one before we can move on to the next, but that we will dip in and out of all three of these areas over the course of our Christian walk. So first of all, to know the truth. In the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 22, Jesus says, you will know the truth. In our reading from Job, we see a man who knows the truth. He knows that his Redeemer lives. We too need to take time to grasp hold of the truth, the truth of the reality that is ours because of our Christian faith. So what does it mean to know the truth? Well, I think quite simply, it's about taking time to familiarise ourselves with the scriptures. In Christ, we see a man who knew the scriptures. When tempted by the devil, it was the scriptures that he quoted. We need to spend time in the word of God. When all is going well and faith feels easy. When we find ourselves a spare time in our days, opening the word of God perhaps feels a natural thing to turn to in our days. But what about when life is tough? When we're surrounded with challenge? When we're filled with questions? When our schedules are filled from daybreak to nightfall? I wonder how many of us, when we look at our priorities, can hand on heart say 
that prayer and taking time in God's word remains at the top, regardless of the circumstances. I know that I certainly can't. I would love to say that time with the Lord is always the top priority on my mind. But truth be told, I'm human. And I give in to the pressures of the world, placing them in a higher priority. But as I consider what it means to place Christ above all in our lives, I'm always inspired by Martin Luther, an incredible man of faith, a man who was preaching, pastoring, translating the Bible, all whilst continuing to be the father and husband that God had called him to be. And he once famously said these words, work, work, from early until late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Luther knew the importance, regardless of how busy the day ahead was, to first be refreshed by God, to be strengthened by God, and to seek the help of God in prayer. Luther knew what it was, to know the truth, to know the presence of Jesus in his life. So we know the truth, and then I think the next step that we need to move to is to live in that truth. In Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica, he provides us with some wonderful advice as to what that might look like in practice. Paul encourages us to stand firm and hold to the traditions that we were taught. What does standing firm really mean? Well, I think it's about choosing to believe and live in the knowledge of what the Bible tells us is true, despite the alternatives that the world might throw at us. Our passage this morning from 2 Thessalonians makes it clear that before Christ returns, the world will throw much temptation in our path, that there will be deception, destruction, and rebellion. For me personally, one area where I have seen this most clearly in my life has been fighting anxiety with biblical truth. There have been times when thoughts have crept in, like, I'm not good enough, I can't do that, I'll never be as good as others are. And in those moments, I've had to consciously take the time to replace that with biblical truth, such as I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, that I haven't been given the spirit of fear, but one of power, of love, and of a sound mind, and of the conviction that it is God who has set the task before me, that Jesus has a plan for my life, and the places he calls me to and the purposes he sets before me are a part of that plan. Now, please don't hear that I am saying this is an easy journey. I absolutely recognise that it really is not. It can be painful and hard. But Steve Goss from Freedom in Christ Ministries International says that we don't feel our way into good behaviour. We behave our way into good feelings. If we wait until we feel like what scripture says of us is true, we will probably be waiting a long time. Instead, we need to take the bull by the horn, so to speak, and declare God's truth over ourselves. And bit by bit, as we do so, we will start to believe this. Not just as head knowledge, because the Bible says so, but as heart knowledge that truly impacts upon our day to day. And then we move on to what Paul says of holding on to traditions. 
Well, I think being part of a worshipping community is a really good place to start in seeing this become a reality for each one of us. Every denomination has slightly different doctrines, but if we drill down to the root of where these doctrines have been created from, they have been formed by human minds trying to formulate a structure in which the truths and traditions we find in scripture can be modelled, lived out and passed from generation to generation. In the URC church, the statement of the nature, faith and order of the United Reformed Church holds the foundations that this denomination has been built upon. It highlights the key biblical truths that we hold to as God's people and outlines the intentions and purposes of the denomination in striving to see unity in the church. In church, as we gather as Christ's body, as we gather as the people of God, we see acts such as baptism, bringing afresh the command that we are given in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In the breaking of bread and outpouring of wine at communion, we undertake a memorial of the Last Supper, reenacting the last meal that Jesus shared with his closest friends. We remember Christ upon the cross and then raised triumphant from the grave, as he commanded us to each time we eat and drink of the gifts of bread and wine. Some might say these are purely symbolic acts, but as we undertake these traditions, I believe we are joining in with age-old celebrations and routines that Christ himself was a part of as he walked upon the earth. So we take time to know the truth, we live in that truth, and then thirdly, I believe that we experience the truth. So we know, so coming back once again to that verse in John 8, Jesus continues and he says this, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. As we look at Job, he knows the truth. He knows that his redeemer lives and this truth to some extent, seems to have set him free somewhat from the torment he fought with a few chapters earlier as to whether his sin was responsible for the trials and tribulations cast upon him. We see in this passage a Job who seems able to lay his shortcomings aside, acknowledging that the one whom he worships and adores forgives all sins and he will stand acquitted before him on the last day. I have so often, as I'm sure many of us have, had people challenge me when going through difficult times, perhaps following a bereavement of a loved one or on hearing of a tragedy as to how I can reconcile my faith with these tough times. Honestly, my answer is I don't know how you face them without knowing Jesus. And Job is a mighty fine example of a man who knew the truth of God amidst a life of pain and suffering. And in this passage, we see a man who understands that one day he will experience the goodness of God in its fullness as he stands face to face before his maker. Journeying with Jesus, though, is more than simply knowing that we will experience his goodness at the end of time, though that, of course, we will. But it also means knowing a friend in the highs and lows, knowing a father for the fatherless, knowing love to the otherwise unloved, knowing hope for the hopeless, 
Journeying with Jesus means knowing that whatever the world may throw at you, we're journeying with the one who already knows what's coming and who knows only too well the reality of human pain and suffering. As we turn back once again to our passage from 2 Thessalonians, we read that it is God himself who brings encouragement, that it is in Christ we find comfort, hope and grace, and ultimately that it is God who establishes every good work and word in us. And doesn't that bring us nicely back to where we left off in our all-age talk? For I believe that it is through these works and words that others will see Christ in us. That others might wish to know his truth for themselves. Setting them upon this wonderful journey of knowing, living in and experiencing his truth. That they too might be set free. And so to summarise, let me leave you with three questions to ponder. How do you take time to know the truth that we read in scripture? What might it look like for you to live in that truth? Where have you experienced that truth in your life already? And where might you still like to experience it? And so I pray that we would each know the truths of Jesus for ourselves, that we would live in the knowledge of those truths, and that as we do so, we would experience the freedom that Jesus has already won for you and for me. And as we do so, others might see something contagious about the way we live and come to know Jesus' love for themselves. Amen.